right, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 207 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be nothing less than the matchstick graph episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that if you want to make a matchstick graph with eight edges, what is a matchstick graph, you ask? Why, it's a geometric graph theory, a, a branch of mathematics. And it's a graph that can be drawn in a plane in such a way that the edges of the line segments don't touch each other it's really weird so uh yeah but if you want an eight edged matchstick graph there are exactly 207 different matchstick graphs with eight edges and with that wonderful little bit of matchstick graph knowledge i of course am matt and coming to us all the way from sunny california this thanksgiving week would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And Matt, you explained that with so much enthusiasm. I think you might have fooled us into thinking you actually knew what you were talking about. Yes, well, it was it was difficult, but I'm glad that I was able to pull off the ruse. But I did enjoy how you said mathematics. You said it like how Frazier would have said it. Mathematics. Is that how you normally say mathematics? Mathematics? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I might have been, you know, doing a little bit of flourish. I wasn't aware that I was calling them mathematics. I usually say mathematics, but eh, whatever. So it is now the week of Thanksgiving. <laughs> Do you have any fun and exciting plans? Well, let's see. Tomorrow, because I had one professor, one, who did not have the good goddamn foresight to realize it was the fucking week of Thanksgiving. <laughs> One professor has not canceled class. So I have one fucking class to go to this week. One. And it's the one I have to drive a goddamn hour to go to. And it's only for an hour. It's really fucking pissing me off. Um, so that's what I have. And then, uh, beyond that though, uh, I've got family coming in, um, friends coming over, all that fun stuff. We will be doing our annual pilgrimage to Santa's Wonderland on Wednesday evening. And then, uh, yeah, we'll have f- f- 15 or so people, uh, here for the old Thanksgiving dinner. We'll have the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We'll do the Cowboys game. And And when Matt says the annual pilgrimage to Santa's Wonderland, I will vouch and say it is indeed a pilgrimage. Because depending on, well, for I guess for those of you who don't know, uh, Santa's Wonderland, it's part a drive-through Christmas light decoration thingy and part like wonderland village area you can like walk around and see santa claus and stuff is that about right i've only done the drive-through thingy well you can no longer do the drive-through thingy it is it is literally gotten so immensely huge that uh you have to actually park and go inside and just do the hayride is it because of Um, all the diesel fumes from all the big ass austin trucks that are no no it's i mean literally it's just thousands upon thousands of people show up every night now so there's just no way they could contain the traffic um so they had to like they actually built out like full gravel parking lots and everything like that and um it's 
nothing like it was when you went last time, I promise. They have um, inflatable rides and like slides and stuff now they've got a big huge barn where they do christmas movies all the time um they have whole entire sections dedicated like petting zoos and restaurants and uh just the santa shit and, a, and an actual full like fucking mini mall uh looks like a goddamn uh cracker barrel christmas cracker barrel exploded inside this fucking building <laughs> are they gonna have a krampus set set up or anything like that I have I don't know about all that. They uh they do have Marshall Frostbite though, which is the creepiest looking fucking snowman thing I've ever seen. But um Marshall you know. Frostbite. Yes. Is he the Smokey the Bear of Frostbite? He is. And the thing is is that it's like <laughs> he has no voice, okay? And I don't mean like at Disney World or Disneyland, where you go up to Mickey in the suit and Mickey doesn't talk. Okay, I'm not... Like, there is nothing to associate with this thing. So there's no speaking, there's no commercials, there's no cartoon, there's no private company-wide stuff for promotion. Nothing that would give you any kind of identity. So you just have this weird, mildly off-putting, smiley face thing on a snowman that's dressed up like a cowboy and as if that wasn't bad enough the only thing he does is this weird little um grapevine move like i don't know if you if you can think back to the old days the old honky tonks and the old country line dancing or whatever but basically you know that little four-step move that you see even in like a broadway show it's a four-step move and you go like right leg out left leg crosses behind the right leg right leg back out, left leg crosses in front. of the, So, you know, you just do this little four-step to the side thing, and then you can reverse it to grapevine to the left. All right. So if you can picture that in your head, it's just this awkward fucking person in a really weird snowman outfit suit thing that's dressed up to look like a goddamn cowboy. But without having guns, going, he has Right, without guns. Canes. And, and, and... All he does with that creepy fucking face is just move back and forth, side to side, to the tune of, ready for this? Now remember, it's Christmas time, it's Christmas time, to the tune of Bonanza. Yes, yes, Bonanza, because nothing screams Texas Christmas like fucking Lauren Green and Michael goddamn Landon when he was 12. I'm just, you know, because that's what Christmas is. Um, it's, yeah, I don't even fucking understand it. And yet the kids go up, they, they love this shit, man, they eat that shit up, uh, you know. I googled Fire Marshal Frostbite or Marshall, whatever, Marshall Frostbite, whatever the hell's name is. And uh, believe it or not, he, he was a Google recommended search. And I'm looking at pictures here, and it looks like there's a southern style western back porch set up with a Christmas tree, and I guess that's where Fire Marshal Frostbite or whatever hangs out, and you you know, your children go up and meet him. But all with all these pictures, it looks like it's a little bit of a racist setup because there's they're not only are they posing in front of this beautifully lit southern esque type of ranch home thing on a porch, but there's a beautiful Christmas tree. But then he's uh he's surrounded by brown gingerbread servants that are 
really happy to be in the back, you know, assisting Fire Marshal Frostbite with the picture taking. Yeah. You know, I don't know, but you would think that they would uh, be a little bit more appreciative of the gingerbread action, uh, especially in light of the Shrek movies. Uh, but but no, apparently not. When in doubt, if you if you are desperate to have a Southern Texas set costume creature of any kind, I mean, go ahead and make him a cowboy and very jolly to look. Like it, what's I think what's what's weird is that like so I'm looking at this picture and it looks like he's wearing a green vest underneath his white skin. <laughs> or wait, that's a bandana. Never mind. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Like I said, uh, I just, it, you know, he kind of creeps me out badly, but uh, I don't know. It It's just, um, yeah, but you know, it's fun. It's fun. I, you know, I would say it's definitely worth going down uh, to see. They've also expanded the lights now, so I'm actually kind of interested to see what the new section of the lights looks like now that it'll be all done. I tell you what, just don't let your kids Google Fire Marshal or Marshall Frostbite, or you're going to actually see some real frostbite. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so that's so that's what we've got going on. And then, of course, on Friday, uh, we will go and do get the old Christmas tree from the old Christmas tree farm, and um, and then just kind of hang out with family and do whatever else. We'll probably go hit the old Howie's Tiki at some point this weekend and have a good time. It's always a great place to bring your kids to the Tiki Bar. Well, I'm sorry. The, the kids won't be going there. That'll be me and my dad and my aunt and my cousin. And Yeah, so what about you? Oh, I'm just going to be crying in my own self-pity, eating <laughs> a lot. Of, I have so much leftover deluxe macaroni and cheese. Uh, I, okay, well, since I brought that up, I will say I did try that box of white cheddar garlic deluxe mac and cheese it is indeed Mm -hmm. significantly better than the regular nacho cheese deluxe mac and cheese (laughs) so if you're going to go with either or go with the white cheddar garlic but enough of that matthew let's get to your let's get to your news of the weird Okay, well, uh, real quick, I did check the old email sack, tickled it around a bit. Uh, if you'd like to do that, send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter if you would like uh, by following us at the SLScast. There was nothing in there, so happy Thanksgiving. If they want to tickle your sack, can they email you about tickling your sack? At this point, yes. So Just so long as we get a little activity in the old email sack, as it were. But anyways, yes, so news of the weird, news of the weird. This comes to us from dailymail.co.uk. This was published back towards the end of October, but this one's just so damn good. I could wait for a special occasion, right? Because, you know, Thanksgiving is all about... um, being thankful for the things that you have and the family that you have and everything. And and nothing warms the cockles of the hearts quite like a parrot squawking saucy words exposes man's affair with his housemaid. His wife marches the bird to the police station demanding justice. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. Or as I like to say, gobble gobble bitches. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were all waiting for you to do that because <laughs> there's because there's a bird in the in the article here right okay so this comes to us um by way of sarah dean 
for mail online, as it were. Um, and again, dailymail.co.uk. Now, here's what's up. So a woman who suspected her husband of cheating with their maid marched their pet parrot to police after it began spouting saucy lines she knew hadn't been said to her. She believed the parrot had exposed her husband's secret trysts, which are illegal in Kuwait, where they lived, Al Shedhead's daily report. Uh, the woman took the parrot to police and filed an adultery complaint against her partner. However, the authorities ruled the parrot's evidence was inadmissible because it was impossible to determine where the bird had heard it. They argued he could have picked up the scandalous lines from television or a radio show. <laughs> Now, you gotta understand, though, in the strict Muslim country of Kuwait, adultery is illegal, and people found guilty of having affairs are subject to severe punishment. That is the article, of course, if you would like to go and read it for yourself. Please feel free. What do you think there, Tim? Uh, <laughs> I gotta, my only question is because, um, when uh, in a former life, I actually helped raise birds with my family, and uh, are, we actually, are you serious? I swear, God, God. I'm keeping a fucking notebook. <laughs> all the shit that you used to do, fuck's sake. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, we did. We ran uh, my my uh, mom and stepdad ran an aviary when we lived in uh, the Miami area, and uh, it was called One Flight Up. Ooh, all so you know, clever. And uh, yeah, we raised. Uh, Conyers, lovebirds, cockatiels, um, Indian ringneck, um, parakeets and stuff like that, Quakers, um, and even macaws occasionally. So the one thing I can tell you, though, about trying to teach a parrot to talk is repetition. So much repetition. Now, I can, I can, I guess if you want to try and argue that they'd heard it on the radio or the TV, um, that maybe somebody had the Playboy channel on like, you know, repeat from, <laughs> from the hopper, right? The Dish Network or whatever it is. Um, but that tells me that this guy has been saying the same damn thing to this woman that he's cheating on his wife with. Enough times. That's a lot of times over a long period of time. So this guy needs to get some new game. That's that's all I can say. At the end of the day here, this guy needs some new game. If he is repeating the same lines over and over and over again so that a parrot will learn them. You know, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? I'm I'm pretty sure that parrot's dead by now. <laughs> like, if I were that guy, I would have just snapped its little parrot neck and... I don't know. Fed it to my wife. <laughs> As a Thanksgiving dinner, right? Exactly. Here's, here's the bird. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a terperitin. What? Yeah, it's where we put a parrot inside of a turkey. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh anyways. Alright, are we ready for some real news, sir? Oh yes. Alright, folks, here we go now. It's the news. <laughs> And for 
first up from me, I've got two wonderful news items this week uh, from independent.co.uk by way of Jacob Stolworthy. Yes, Fantastic Beasts actor Eddie Redmayne won't be the lead character in future films. Yes, that's right. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the prequel spinoff to J.K. Rowling's beloved Harry Potter series, stars Eddie Redmayne in the lead role as magic zoologist Newt Scamander. With five films confirmed, all of which will be directed by David Yates, it's a sure bet that Redmayne will be reprising his role for several years to come. However, it's been suggested that he won't be the focus of all future outings. Speaking about the franchise, Peter, uh, pr- I'm sorry, producer David Heyman told Cinema Blend, quote, I don't think Newt will be at the heart of all of them. I think he'll be a part, so will Tina, Queenie, and Jacob, will be part of the next one. I've heard that Dumbledore has been confirmed too, and Credence and Grindelwald. Uh, Grindelwald. I think they will be the main players, end quotes there. Um, what do you think there, Tim? Uh, there's a little bit more to the article as well as an actual video regarding it. If you would like to check that out, I highly encourage you to do so again over at independent.co.uk. Um, does this surprise you, Tim? Because it kind of surprises me a little bit, but at the same time, it makes it kind of makes sense too. Yeah, I, I just hope if they keep introducing new characters, they're not as freaking difficult to remember or say, like Grindelwald. Grindelwald. <laughs> I I don't know. I that that's gonna be horrible. You know, now John, uh, he is a main bad guy apparently. Uh, or will become a main bad guy, so they say. I'm I'm gonna have to go to like Harry Potter school or something and 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 learn the lingo. But you know what? I really liked. I thoroughly enjoyed Fantastic Beasts uh, for what it was, and I did like Eddie Redmayne's character. And I can totally see why he wouldn't continue to be the main character. For one thing, I think his Spiel, like, I really don't know if, if his character is as interesting as Harry Potter was to warrant a multiple story arc or uh, multiple stories to build up that character arc or not. So I don't know. I, I think we're going to be talking about Fantastic Beasts more in a little bit, but I kind of thought that Fantastic Beasts was a good movie, but it wasn't a, it was not a movie to where I was like, man, I cannot wait to watch five more movies about these same exact characters like I was with the original Harry Potter movies. Fair enough, man, fair enough. All right, well, what do you got for us? All right, from Collider.com, an article here written by Adam Chitwood. The Girl in the Spider's Web will be a dragon tattoo sequel, says writer Stephen Knight. This came out last weekish on the 14th, and it says this. There's been intense interest in Sony Pictures' The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo franchise, or lack thereof. One of the reasons the studio was able to woo David Fincher to direct the bestseller adaptation was because it was sold as a big-budget franchise made exclusively for adults. A $100 million-plus budget for a hard R-rated film tackling adult subject matter. But while the film was gorgeously crafted and quite compelling, it failed to catch on with audiences at large, grossing $232.6 million worldwide. Now, that's not a bad figure for a $50 million to $60 million adult drama, but for a film intended to kick off a big-budget franchise, that number made the prospect of a sequel rather murky. 
Add in the fact that Fincher and Sony butted heads strongly during the film's production, marketing, and post-production period, and movement on The Girl Who Played With Fire, the next book in Stieg Larsson's series, has been going slow. And I'm skipping a paragraph here to Collider's own Christina Radish recently spoke with screenwriter Stephen Knight in anticipation of the upcoming World War II thriller Allied, and Knight talked briefly about his involvement in scripting The Girl in the Spider's Web. First and foremost, Knight explained that he was commissioned to pin the script, meaning it's been a bit of a collaboration with the studio. And he says this, quote, "...a commission and an original are two different things." And both have their virtues and vices. A commission is a bit more collaborative in that you outline the story that you think should be told, and then you write it. And then there are notes and you change it in the conventional studio system. But it was great fun to do because of the central character. With the girl in the spider's web, the girl is really the central character. She's the whole thing. It's not really Bloomfist. End quote. Indeed, Spider's Web, the book, was penned by David Larchkrantz following Larson's death and very much feels like a bit of a standalone story with Elizabeth Salander attempting to track down someone from her past, which leads to discovery of the Spider Society. Given that Spider's Web doesn't much involve the events of Dragon Tattoo, Knight was asked if the film was more of a reboot or a sequel. He explained that while the film is certainly different, it's definitely being conceived as a sequel. Quote, It can't be anything other than a sequel, but a couple of books have been skipped, so it's different in that sense. It's really taking a very strong central character and thinking, how do you execute this? It's quite different. End all quotes there. And uh, as a side note, I uh, didn't mention before that The Girl in the Spider's Web is actually the fourth book in the series. As mentioned briefly, Stig Larsson passed away after he published A Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. I think that was the third book. And I, I forgot who David Ladgerkrantz is, uh, but he's the one that converted Larson's notes into the book, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Matt, what do you think about this? I know that it has been rumored that neither... Daniel Craig, nor even Rooney Mara will be reprising their roles. It could be a completely different cast. Do you like that, or do you think the studios should just stick with what they started with? I think they just need to leave this shit alone, period. I think that they already failed to truly appreciate what was done in Europe with the original trilogy that was made. And yet... And instead of trying to let it go, it seems like they're doubling down. And then they're trying to double down by doing a double bait and switch because it's going to be presented as a Stieg Larsson thing, even though we all know that he didn't. And clearly, you just explained that. Um, and then on top of that, they're probably not, like you said, they're probably not even going to be able to bring back the original cast. So, I mean, it's like, why the fuck are you even bothering? Just literally just... Just call the movie something else and then just make a movie that's about basically the same thing. And again, uh, I am a dumb. Sony employee and I know one of the heads of the company, Tom Rothman, who Sony hired uh, a year or so ago. He is known for taking large or high concept movies and producing them with a small budget. And what was good about the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake was that 
It was a bigger budget movie, therefore they had a lot of time to get it right. And David Fincher, if he has the resources, he can get anything or uh, nearly anything he touches absolutely right. And so I would just hate to see this movie get made for a few million bucks and it's not handled with love and care, you know? And I think that's my main concern. Indeed. And, I mean, you clearly would... (laughs) You definitely would would, uh, know more in that vein... Uh, than I would. And, and I think, again, I think that makes it even easier to just forget trying to attach anything that people know to it. I think it would literally be fair to simply recast it, do the plot, and just call it something else. Um, this way you can still, because you own the rights, you can still use the characters, the plots, you can still use the storylines and everything else. You just, change the names, change the place, so that people don't immediately associate it with something else. And then if it succeeds, it succeeds on its own, and it can be done in that better vein of lower budgets. Um, or at least, and I, and I say lower, you know, let's say 30, 40 million, right? Um, I'm not talking, you know, 12 or less here. It just seems to me that that would be the best way to go because it would allow it then to build its own momentum, do its own thing, and then it doesn't have to be, um, it does, it just simply doesn't have to be guilty by association. But that is just, that's just me. Get out of here with my reason and measured response. <laughs> From io9.com, I found this to be pretty interesting. Uh, James Gunn bets $100,000 on existence of Final Guardians Easter Egg. This is written by Beth Elderkin, and this article was actually published this past Saturday. And it says this, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 director James Gunn is confident Marvel fans still haven't found his last key Easter egg in the first Guardians film. So much so, he told one fan he'd pay him $100,000 if he could prove it doesn't exist. Guardians of the Galaxy is known for having a long list of Easter eggs that Gunn hid in the film. At least 50 have been discovered so far. Last year, Gunn told fans that there was one major Easter egg that still hadn't been uncovered, leading fans into a Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory-esque search for the golden ticket of MCU clues. Quote, they have not all been found. No one has found the big one, really, end quote, Gunn said in September 2015. Quote, maybe once someone came close, end quote. Gunn recently took to Facebook to chat with fans about the upcoming sequel, and someone asked whether he'd consider just sharing the final Easter egg with fans since they hadn't figured it out yet. Of course, one guy responded that it's probably because it doesn't exist, to which Gunn said that he would pay the commenter $100,000 if he could prove it. The commenter soon backtracked because Gunn might have $100,000 to throw around, but the rest of us probably don't. And in this article, they do have screen grabs from that little interaction between the two. And what's funny is after James Gunn commented with the, I I will give you... $100,000, let this quote be considered a binding contract, a legally binding contract. And then the guy, Tanin Moores, who asked him the question beforehand, responded with, if I lose, do I have to give you (laughs) $100,000? I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, End all quotes there. Uh, What do you think, Matt? Do you think this is... I I mean, I can't really ask if this is of any big importance because... 
it's just an Easter egg. And it's kind of funny how people are all about it. Then again, I'm not like a huge, crazy Guardians of the Galaxy or, or Marvel fan. Oh, I you know what? I think it's a lot of fun. I might just, just for shits and giggles, um, I might have to just kind of go over like an existing list um, of Easter eggs and then maybe watch the movie this week. I mean, you know, it was fun. I mean, it would be fun, just worth a shot. Hey, see if you kind of notice something that's weird or out of place in a scene, and then be like, "Huh," and then get a hundred thousand bucks for it. Uh, you know what? It's worth watching a good movie to do that. I, I would watch that movie again for that. And, and on the side note, or as a side note, real quick, slashfilm.com does have uh, a list here: Gardens of the Galaxy Easter eggs, over fifty trivia references, callbacks, cameos, and more. And this list was posted way back on August fifth of two thousand and fourteen. Again, that's on slashfilm.com. So, what do you got Sweet. next? All right, this is my last uh, piece of news for this episode, and subsequently for Thanksgiving. From SlashFilm.com, by way of Peter Scaretta, Legendary Entertainment acquires rights to make Dune movie and TV series. Yes! Legendary and the Frank Herbert estate have reached an agreement which includes both the film and television motion picture rights to the classic sci-fi novel Dune. The agreement allows Legendary and Universal Pictures to develop film and television projects based on the franchise for a global audience. Set in the distant future, Dune tells the story of Paul Atreides, whose family accepts control of the desert planet Arrakis. As the only producer of a highly valuable resource, control of Arrakis is highly contested among the noble families. After Paul and his family are betrayed, the story explores themes of politics, religion, and man's relationship to nature as Paul leads a rebellion to restore his family's control of Arrakis. Yes, Often referred to as the science fiction version of Lord of the Rings, the book won Hugo and Nebula Awards and is one of the most famous science fiction novels ever written. Uh, there is much more to this article. This is about, well, actually a little less than half the article, but this definitely gets the gist right through, so please visit SlashFilm.com. Again, from Peter Scaretta, Legendary Entertainment Acquires Rights to Make Dune Movie and TV Series. What do you think, Tim? Is this good, bad, indifferent? Time will tell. What do you think? As long as it's better than the David Lynch movie and half as good as what I think Jodorowsky's Dune would have been. <laughs> well, that would have been I, okay. that would be awesome if they could take the Jodorowsky Dune book and make that into like a really cool animated movie, kind of like heavy metal or something. Sure. And the thing is is that um to give David Lynch a little bit of credit, um there is a it, it was eventually put on gosh, sci-fi Right back when it used to be called the Sci-Fi Channel, um, there is like a four-hour and fifteen-minute version of Dune that was aired. It was like aired over the course of like two days or something like that, um, and it's a really good version of the movie because they actually put you. They take the time to put you inside people's heads, um, and I'm and I mean literally, like you, like they kind of almost pause the scene so that you can stop and listen to internal dialogue. Um, and it helps flesh out the story so much better. You begin to understand why Paul is so important and the things that he does um, are so innate and that's how he becomes Muad'Dib, right? So it's really a lot better. Now, no, there's still a lot of problems with it, don't get me wrong. But 
I, I gotta hand it to him. It's, it's just not the kind of movie you can put into two hours. This was four hours and 15 minutes and it made it a lot better. So, you know, God bless him. He did, he did what he could. But remember, there's also like eight or nine books in this series. Um, my stepdad was a huge, huge fan. And he said by the time it got to book seven, it's like just completely fucking off the rails. So who knows? Who knows what will end up happening after all is said and done. But I think personally, if, um, they can, get the really major plot points across in a movie and just hit the strong beat so that people will go and see it. I think they could support the backing stuff with TV series. I think that would be outstanding if they could, you know, let them feed off of each other. Um, it would be awesome. But anyways, that's my news. Bring us home on the news, sir. My last piece of news and the last piece of news, two last pieces of news to end our little Thanksgiving Gobble Gobble Beaches episode. From Deadline.com, fake Kung Fu Panda creator found guilty of fraud and perjury faces 25 years in jail. <laughs> this is written by Dominic Patton, and it says this. Almost a year after being indicted for fraud and perjury in his claims that DreamWorks Animation stole his idea for Kung Fu Panda, a federal jury today found James... That's right, James Gordon guilty. With sentencing to come on March 30th next year, the result could find the amateur cartoonist behind bars for up to 25 years and paying out fines over 500000 plus restitution to DWA after his attempt to defraud them. It took the Massachusetts jury just three hours to come back with their determination that Gordon lied under oath and committed wire fraud in a case where reality and fact seemed too often to be fluid from the defendant's point of view. Having started out with allegations in 2011 with DWA lifted the idea for the Mark Osborne and John Stevenson co-directed 2008 blockbuster and hence its two sequels from a pitch he submitted, the multi-million dollar settlement seeking Gordon was forced to drop the case in 2013. Having rejected Gordon's attempt at getting $12 million plus piece of all of all future kung fu income, DWA lawyers revealed that they discovered that he had backdated and changed documents and actually copied his supposed original drawings from the early 1990s from a 1996 Lion King coloring book. He was desperate. I mean, obviously this guy is desperate. I mean, who would have thought anybody would have caught him doing this? <laughs> After having cost the now Comcast-owned DWA over $1 million in legal fees, plus $2 million from their insurance company, Gordon soon thought that even though he had withdrawn his case, the Fed's alarm bells were wildly going off. Deleted and damning files erased from his computer... Playing fast and loose with the truth during depositions and under oath, and the emails from Gordon's lawyers to DWA seeking cash were all presented as part of the government's case. End all quote. Well, I, it goes on there for a little while longer. Again, he did lie under oath, but how how about that, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> the DWA lawyers revealed that they discovered, again, I'm going to read this one last time, that he had backdated and changed documents and actually copied his supposed original drawings from the early 1990s from a 1996 Lion King coloring book. 
<laughs> well, I will say that um, while while definitely I understand, you know, big movie corporations that want to, you know, protect their investments and you know go after their property, the fact that they that they were so you know diligently and desperately defending this with and going after it like this tells me maybe this guy was inadvertently onto something perhaps maybe somebody out there really did do kung fu kung kung fu kung fu panda first i don't know but um i'm sorry i i i feel bad for the guy in a way um because now he's going to have to pay all this money and maybe go to jail and all you know all these bad things um but at the same time you're a fucking moron if you literally went to a coloring book and said i made this <laughs> uh that's fun that's fun <laughs> and lastly here uh matt i'm interested in what you have to say about this Via SlashFilm.com, this is kind of sort of movie news. I thought it was rather interesting. X-Men comics writer blames movie rights deals for the downfall of X-Men comics. This is written by Ethan Anderton, and it says this. Even though Sony Pictures was able to strike a deal with Marvel Studios to share the rights to Spider-Man, fans have learned that 20th Century Fox is nowhere near considering striking a similar deal to share characters like X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Deadpool. In fact, word on the street has been that the relationship between Fox and Marvel is rather tense. In case you need any more evidence of that, X-Men comics writer Chris Claremont has given... His own take on how the recent downfall of X-Men comics is tied directly to movie rights ownership and plain old show business. In an interview with Bleeding Cool via Collider about the state of X-Men comics, specifically their low sales, Chris Claremont offered up this bitter take on the topic, saying, quote, That has nothing to do with comic sales. That has everything to do with the fact that the film rights are controlled by a rival corporation, end quote. Quote, I guarantee you that if 10 years ago when Marvel was approached by Disney, if the X-Men film rights were owned by Marvel Studios and not Fox, the X-Men would probably still be the paramount book in the canon. The reason for the emphasis on the other titles is because Marvel Disney control the ancillary film rights, whereas all the film rights for the FF, the Fantastic Four, and the X-Men are controlled by Fox, who has no interest in the comic books, end quote. Quote, so I think the corporate publishing attitude is, why would we go out of our way to promote a title that will benefit a rival corporation's films when we could take that same energy enthusiasm and focus and do it for our own properties? Hence the rise of the Inhumans as the new equivalent of the mutants. I could wish for something else, but it ain't my $5 billion, end quote. Indeed, both in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in the comics, Inhumans have become the new mutants. That's essentially because those characters can have familiar pow- uh, similar powers and have a team element like the X-Men, but Marvel doesn't have to worry about benefiting Fox's movie franchise by giving them fresh stories to turn into movies. That's also why they're not really creating new characters in the X-Men universe anymore. In all quotes there, the article does go on uh, for a little bit more. Do check it out again via SlashFilm.com. X-Men Comics writer blames movie rights deal 
for the downfall of X-Men comics. Matt, what do you think about this? They definitely have a valid point, but there's also a little bit of a scorched earth policy that Marvel has nowadays. And basically they are, um, it's, it's kind of like if we can't have it, nobody can. And so, um, much like Fantastic Four, where they literally just said there is no more Fantastic Four, they're gonna, they're, they're kind of doing the same thing. And, and while it's a little bit more legitimate, in terms of X-Men versus Inhumans and stuff like that. Um, the simple fact of the matter is, is that if you look at the movies, the movies have really kind of painted themselves into a corner with literally nowhere left to go. And reboot trains aside, people don't, people need something new to work with. And, um, now that they'll have nothing, and Marvel is going to have everything going forward um, outside of the name, people will just simply deal with what they have. And, yeah, so, I, I and, and you know what, at the end of the day, it's kind of a smart idea, because um, outside of, you know, getting Deadpool right, and God, fingers crossed for Logan, please, fingers crossed for Logan, um, I, you know, I haven't been impressed I've I've seen what two good X Men movies, you know, out of all the X Men movies there are, so maybe maybe Marvel's got a point. And that's my news. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us to the end of the news, as we have uh, said, and then brings us to Copycat Throwdown. It's it's the the copy copy. Cat. Cat. Throwdown. Throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's that's right. right. It's It's the the copycat throwdown. Stop it. Stop Stop it. No, no. Seriously. Stop it. Oh. Right. Like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh. uh, Okay. I'm going to kick your ass. ass. Throwdown all right, and this time on Copycat uh, Throwdown, we are going to be doing Thunderball versus Never Say Never Again, which is, strictly speaking, a remake of Thunderball. Um, all right, so basically, due to some backroom, I don't want to say shenanigans, but ostensibly... Um... Do you need help with this? No, but okay, so it wasn't shenanigans. I'm just trying to make sure I say this the right way. All right, so... They got not drunk. shenanigans. <laughs> Seriously, it was Ian Fleming got drunk with a guy named uh, Kevin McClory, who had money and he really was interested in Ian Fleming to write a new Bond, like an original Bond movie, opposed to a new Bond book. And so that's when Thunderball happened. And also Harry Saltzman, I should I think I'm saying that right, and Cubby Broccoli, all those guys were at that get together also, and they were all getting drunk. And by the next morning. Due to the amount of partying that they were doing that night, they all forgot who came up with what. And so the rights of the movie, they all had a share in it. Therefore, McClory had the right to get a screenwriting slash story by credit for Thunderball. And 10 years after Thunderball released, the rights were diverted back to McClory. And that's when he ended up making Never Say Never Again, which is pretty much a direct remake of Thunderball. 
Well, there you go. All right. So now you've got the idea. And basically, uh, we have James Bond played by Sean Connery in both movies. And of course, Never Say Never Again is a kind of a tie back to in, uh, 1971 when Sean Connery was like, I'm never going to make another James Bond movie. And then of course he, he did. He said it exactly like that too. That's the funny thing. <laughs> he did. He's, he's very good that way, you know. All right, so basically the idea here is that Spectre, the um, underground criminal movement, right? It's the anti, you know, it's the anti-good guy agency, right? It's it's the uh, it's the complete espionage, like formally, if we put it all under one banner and gave them a corporation name, Spectre, it's them. Kind of like the movie you saw with Blofeld and everything last year, uh, Daniel Craig and all the good stuff. So, uh, both movies revolve around the plot to surreptitiously steal two nuclear warheads and hold the world hostage for X amount of money or X amount of, um, you know, perks or whatever the hell it is that they want to do. Um, and NATO's got to pay up or give up. And if they don't, bad things will happen. Sean Connery, of course, is James Bond, comes in and saves the day. Both times. Of course, in the Never Say Never Again version, you get Kim Basinger. Yeah, baby. Anyway, alright. So, here's, here's where I land on this one. Thunderball is the better movie. It's got, it's got 60s cool down to a fucking science by this point, because it's the fourth or fifth movie in the franchise. Um, I, I think it's the fifth movie anyway. Um, and it's everything that you know and love about the way that 60s spy movies worked. And then, of course, it's Sean Connery being ultra Sean Connery. And everything about it works. And I think despite all the technological advances that we've had and everything, uh, the retrofuturism and everything that's involved in this movie is just so spectacularly amazing. Um, and it just feels a lot more slick. However, and, and long story short, Thunderball is the winner for me. But I will say this. Never Say Never Again is flat out more goddamn fun. It is just fun. And you can almost tell everybody was like, well, this is the only shot we're going to get at this, so fuck it. Have a good time. And they all the way down to fucking video games. 3D video games that give you electric shocks if you don't pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I, Come on. It's just more fun. And I think that's why both movies are still... Uh, talked about and discussed and watched because there are merits to never say never again. It's not as good as Thunderball, but damn it, it's a fucking fun ride. And, and it is also Sean Connery. It is a kind of a nice send off for Sean Connery, even if it is, uh, in a back channel kind of way, it is a- official now, but it's still not part of canon in terms of what we see now today with Daniel Craig. So that's what I have to say. There you go. Thunderball wins. Never say never again is fucking fun. Don't say it again. Shh. It again. <laughs> As I mentioned, Kevin McClory, this guy, wanted to remake Thunderball. Like, he, this guy was crazy. He wanted to make all these movies, but yet 
Because of the type of guy he was, the two original producers of the original Bond films, Cubby Broccoli and uh, Saltzman, Henry, I think it's Henry Saltzman. So uh, the original two James Bond producers who created the James Bond movies themselves, Cubby Broccoli and Henry Saltzman, so they produced the Eon Pictures, which is the everything or nothing production company. And... Eon Productions have been like, when you think of Bond, you think of Eon Productions. You think of the early Roger Moore movies. You think the Lansenby movie. You think of the early, uh, the original Connery flicks. You don't really think of Never Say Never Again, because that was a movie that was produced completely separately. It was more of a, not, I don't want to say more of a lower budget film, but say Thunderball in 1965 cost them $9 million to make. Never Say Never Again in 82-83 cost $36 million to make. Uh, but then again, the James Bond movie that a lot of people really don't remember... Well, I guess they remember it because of the name, but I don't think they really realize that there were two competing James Bond movies in 1983. Octopussy was made for $27.5 million. However... Because Octopussy had Roger Moore, who by that time was the James Bond, and that was kind of like a new generation of James Bond fanatics considered Roger Moore to be their James Bond, it made more money than Never Say Never Again. On that budget of $27.5 million, Octopussy made 183 and Never Say, uh, Never Say Never Again, with a $36 million budget, made $160 million. I know we're not talking about Octopussy, but uh, I just think that's kind of interesting. So at the time, there was kind of a race to make the two different James Bond movies. So you had the Eon production Octopussy versus the Kevin McClory Never Say Never Again. And I will say this about Thunderball. Thunderball is the better James Bond movie, but I think Never Say Never Again was the better shot James Bond movie. I thought the production value was top-notch. I thought the cinematography and the directing was top-notch. And that was, of course, due to Irvin Kirshner's directing. He made this movie into a top-notch flick. Again, it was beautifully shot, beautifully choreographed, beautifully framed. He makes this movie feel bigger than it actually is. Irvin Kirshner, for those of you who don't know this, he actually went on to direct Empire Strikes Back. So after Empire Strikes Back, I mean, this was probably, I would have to say, one of his next better movies. It was an absolute delight to see Sean Connery back in the saddle again. He just has this way of playing Bond that after Roger Moore has done it for a while, who Roger Moore was compared to be more of a chauvinistic pig, uh, more of a uh, love enforcer than a romancer like Sean Connery was. It was just kind of nice to see the more subtle Bond back in action to where if the woman doesn't let him screw her, he'll persuade her in like the cheekiest of ways and never by force. And, And that's what I always liked about Sean Connery. And whenever he does use force to get information from a woman or to get information from a bad guy, it just makes a little bit more sense, you know, or I guess it's a little bit more forgiving on his part. I thought the main bad guy, other than Blofeld, number two, which is Largo, uh, in Thunderball he had the eye patch, super iconic villain, but when you think of Klaus Brandur's character of Largo, nobody, it never really ever comes to mind as one of the iconic Bond villains. And again, it's also because this is not considered a part of the 
Eon, MGM, Bond canon of films. Klaus Brandor's Largo is actually one of the better Bonds in the series of Bond movies. Uh, he's more charismatic. There's more character to him and, and likability, I guess. And every time he was on the screen, I was interested in seeing what he was going to do or what he was going to say. He always had a smile on his face, which made him that much less trustworthy, I think. And it just completely worked. I mean, he he's not like the, the over-the-top evil German Bond villain that we would have seen, you know, in some of these other movies. He's, again, just more likable. You just really didn't know what he was going to do next. I, I mean, I know that McClory was remaking Thunderball here, but there were one too many ridiculous, like, goofy callbacks to Thunderball. Like, what made Thunderball, like the jetpack scene, interesting to watch is because it came out in 1965, and the hamminess, you know, you can let that slide by. But even in 1983, when you have the jetpack scene at the end, the the sub-missile-turned-jetpack, I mean, it was just a little too tongue-in-cheek of a callback to Thunderball. And there were multiple things like that, especially the ending of the movie where it takes place underwater, scuba diving. People think of Thunderball as the scuba diving James Bond movie. And never say never again, they kind of implore that same scuba diving material, but mainly at the end of the film. And I just think the movie could have broken away a little bit from Thunderball. And I think this kind of really proves to you the downfall of this Kevin McClory guy. Never Say Never Again is still an entertaining flick. And again, which one of these two is the better movie? It's hard to say for me, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I can go either way. And I know we really don't do toss-ups, so I think I'm going to have to go with the original Thunderball. Although I definitely appreciate, again, what Never Say Never Again <laughs> has to offer. And I well, do recommend you, can you have one. Out. You can have one because I've had one, so you can have one. Really? Oh, cool. Okay. Well, this is my one then. This is my okay. toss-up. What was your I'll one? Draw. Uh Escape from New York versus Lockout. I truly couldn't pick between which one was better or which one was worse. Ooh. I just did not have a favorite on those. Yeah. So there you go. Awesome. All right. Well, there you go. So now we both have a draw. And that brings us to the end of the copycat throwdown, because I just had a brain fart there. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be returning to Cream of the Crap. Yes. And we're going to go back into the Creme old bullets, crap? bombs. Creme, is that what it is? Creme de la crap? Yeah, okay, somebody sure. also already has a cream of the crap, apparently. Uh, I thought it was somebody already had best of the worst. Is oh. that what it Okay. Well, well I mean, I, I guess either or. Creme de la crap now. Okay, so whatever that is, uh, we'll be doing that. And we're going to go back to the old bullets, bombs, and babes. We're going to do it at the very beginning. We're going to start at the beginning and go with Malibu Express. Can it dethrone hard ticket to Hawaii and roller boogie? I'm just, I don't know. There's nothing to dethrone. We're just going to decide whether or not it truly is an amazingly bad movie or just a bad movie. We shall see. That's yes. for next week. Now that it's finally getting colder in Los Angeles, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're already missing the hot, the hot sexiness. That is correct. That is correct. All right. So without further ado, I believe that brings us to the movies. Does it not, sir? Yes, sir. All right, folks, here we go. It's 
And this week's movies are Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, along with Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Where do you want to start, sir? You know, both of these can have great porno names. I think Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Cock should go first. All right, then let's do it. So Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk... Uh, it's, uh, of course, a war, 2016 war drama films directed by Ang Lee. And this is actually based on a novel of the same name from 2012. Uh, film stars Joe Alwyn, Kristen Stewart, Chris Tucker, Garrett Hedlund, Vin Diesel, and Steve Martin. Uh, it stars, uh, Joe Alwyn as Billy Lynn, a 19 year old army specialist who's fighting in Iraq. He is part of the Bravo unit. Um, or I guess second division or whatever it is because the part of the airborne. And, um, after inadvertently getting filmed in a very heroic moment, um, Billy is, Billy and his, uh, troops are, are taken back and they're on a, you know, a two week tour before going back to Iraq. And this, I'm sorry, I guess we should point out this movie takes place in 2004. And uh, they're on a big publicity tour. Hey, look at the, you know, hail the conquering heroes and all that kind of stuff. And this culminates in a Thanksgiving Day football game at Dallas Stadium. Of course, all the names have changed, right, to protect people who didn't pay for um, advertising and whatnot. And um, they, uh, and, and so, yeah, and so basically the idea behind the movie is kind of to show what is going on in the soldiers heads versus what's going on and how we as a society view our troops and what it means to them in terms of how we show i i don't want to say devotion but our support um regardless of whether or not you back their cause no one uh, at least the vast majority of people today don't hold an individual soldier necessarily responsible, but, and so we support what they want and hope to achieve. And yet for them, what does that mean? And that's kind of like what the film explores. And the movie, okay. So I'm going to pull up this thing here because I, I saw the movie today, today, 21st of November, as it were. So Tim and I, and after I watched the movie, this is what I sent to Tim. I said, so there's a lot wrong with Billy Lynn, but damn it, there's a great movie just dying to get out. And I think that's kind of what's going to sum up my review on this movie. In an effort to showcase technological marvelry, um, the decision was made to do 120 frames per second, 4K fucking, um, uh, everything, you know, fucking kitchen sink thrown at it, whatever. Um, to such the point that basically there's only six theaters in the fucking world that can show this movie the way it was filmed. Um, I assume, Tim, did you go to the Arc Light and see it? Cause that's one of two theaters in the United States that can show it. 
I did not. I saw this movie uh, as a disclaimer for free at work, not in the 128 frames per second. Or nor in 3D. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, I just watched it in regular whatever digital projection. I got no 3D, no special anything either. Um, and so I think, sadly, that a lot of that was simply wasted. Also, in its effort to showcase such artistry, like a ton of literal first-person views and stuff, um, a lot of extreme close-ups and box framing of the face and stuff, um, it's... It's literally the artistry is getting in the way of the storytelling. Um, also, the way that the film was edited doesn't allow for the reminiscence to make a lot of sense a lot of times. So you're kind of left with this disjointed feeling. And maybe that's part of it because, you know, as someone who would suffer from PSD, PTSD, you know, they're jarred between reality and their memories and stuff. So I don't know if that was intentional to try and help the audience relate to something like that or what, but I think that it just doesn't work artistically. But the thing is, is that there are breaths of amazing performances in there and there's good writing and themes that are worth exploring in there that get broken up by very jarring moments like again a mismatched memory or um a a, a brawl breaking out in a loading dock things that don't add to the experience but instead leave you breaking your your immersion and yet there are really good things that help kind of help kind of let you as a, as a civilian rethink how you would approach thanking someone for their service necessarily um or perhaps people who served to kind of go yeah that that's a little bit more like what it is for us today. You know, we, we talk about the realism that we saw in Hacksaw Ridge and we compared that to, you know, Saving Private Ryan. And yet I, I don't know because I have not had enough historical study, um, combat wise to know if this is as real as it can be. But I get the sense that they were truly trying to give us a realistic depiction of combat in Iraq. So there's, again, there's just tons of themes that are really important and just bubbling beneath the surface. But half the time, either the cinematography, the blocking of the scene itself, or the editing gets in the goddamn way. So if you're willing to look past those flaws and try and let the, and, and let the story tell itself i think you'll be willing i think you will not be disappointed in what you saw at the end of the day this movie comes in at a 3.25 because i did like it despite its flaws and it is heavily flawed i can honestly say that i liked it and i really think that even in some of the jarring moments the glimmers of light that you see from the story in terms of the storytelling and what it's trying to do still reach you and still can move you. 
And that's why it gets that extra quarter star. Because otherwise, this movie just walks away being likable and more of a head-scratcher than anything else. But I mean, there are still some really good breaths of life in this movie. And I think it's at least worth exploring. Maybe not... Um, Maybe not in the theater, but at least at some point. 3.25 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? Again, I saw this at work, so full disclosure, I did not pay anything to see this movie. I saw it for free. I did see it at 24 frames per second, the normal, regular frame rate, and not in 120 frames per second and in 3D. To give you an idea of how crisp and real 120 frames per second looks... You remember back when The Hobbit came out and people freaked out because it looked like you were watching The Hobbit through a window, like actually taking place in front of you? Well, that movie was shown in actually a number of theaters in 48 frames per second, double the frame rate that Matt and I saw this movie in. So The Hobbit was 48 frames per second, and Billy Lynn, you could see it in 120 frames per second. Of what I've read, like I'm looking at this Vulture article where this guy, the guy who wrote the article, let me just get his name real quick, Jackson McHenry, where he talks about the normal frame rate and whether or not it makes uh, Billy Lynn a better movie. This is what he said about his experience seeing it in both frame rates. Uh, He says that in some, Billy Lynn is a better film in the lower frame rate. The contours of the plot become clearer, and more importantly, it's possible to forget that you're watching a film in the first place. If Billy Lynn at 120 frames per second is a lumbering effects demonstration, in 24 frames per second, it's a more of a bleak farce. And, And that's kind of like what I've been hearing from a lot of people who have seen it in the... Uh, 120 frames per second showings to whereas they're watching the movie and they can just see the bad acting they can see people acting they can see people trying too hard i mean even in 20 frames per second i thought the the love interest the cheerleader girl was a horrible actress i mean she's cute and looks great as a cheerleader and everything and i'm sure she's a fine actress in other roles but she was just not good in this movie girls do not act like that young women do not act like that uh southern girls don't talk like that it was just really not good and there's multiple things like that in the movie like people's reactions the close-ups the forced close-ups the forced reactions Just all that forced can be seen clearer when it does look like you're looking at this or watching this super close up in person. So to where you can see every crease in the face, every line in the face. When we look at the, when we look in a mirror, when we look at ourselves or when we look at somebody that we know closely, we can tell when they're exaggerating. We can tell when they're lying. And it's painfully obvious in such a high frame rate when you can see them fake it. And I could see them fake it even at 24 frames per second. So that's why I'm saying I can't, I mean, I I couldn't imagine how distracting it would have been watching it in 120 frames per second. I give this movie, real quick, 2.75 out of 5. I, for most of the movie, wanted to give it at least three stars because there is a great movie in there. If you watch the trailer, the trailer will just bring you to tears. And I was expecting that with this movie. Just something so powerful, something so uplifting, something so human. 
And we didn't really get that. There's definitely all these glimpses in the interaction, the interactions between the people in his in his group, the camaraderie and the fights and the arguments and just but mainly the camaraderie between all of them and and the pressure that they all have to deal with. But I did like how the movie was from Billy Lynn's point of view especially the whole halftime show where you never see the action from the front. You see it all from the back. And yes, in the movie, Beyonce, Destiny's Child, they're the performers. And yes, they couldn't get Destiny's Child to reunite to recreate that Super Bowl moment. But you, and it makes the, it, it's more impactful though when you watch it from his point of view because you know what he's going through. You know he's suffering from some kind of PTSD, or at least that's what you're led on to believe in. And so you're seeing him and hearing him and feeling him react to the explosions, the fireworks, and the loud music and the drumming and the harassment from some of the Destiny's Child dancers. And you're watching this all from the back. In some weird way, again, I could never fully realize or experience what these men are going through at the time or what any uh, of these guys ever go through, period. But I just get a taste of that sense of humility and under underappreciation. I think I'm saying that underappreciation. Sure. I think that's where this movie succeeds. I think it's worth checking out no more than seven bucks if you can manage or just wait for a rental. But it's a good movie, and I am excited to see where Ang Lee takes this technology further or how he takes it further. The high frame rate and with the 3D, I think he could make something brilliant. I mean, this is the guy that created Life of Pi, for heaven's sakes. Like, I I guess I can give this guy one bad review at least once and still look forward to his next great movie. 2.75 out of 5 for me. All right, well then that leaves us with Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Fantastic Queefs and... Uh, I thought you were going to go with breasts, but okay. Where to smell them? (laughs) Uh, Let's see here. 2016 British fantasy film directed by David Yates. And of course, this is a spinoff of the Harry uh, Potter film series. And this is J.K. Rowling's first crack at a screenplay. Um... So basically, this is set in the Roaring Twenties, and Newt Scamander, played by Eddie Redmayne. Oh, and I guess I should mention that Eddie Redmayne, Catherine Waterston, Dan Fogler, Allison Sudol, Ezra Miller, Samantha Morton, John Voight, Carmen Ejogo, and Colin Farrell all star. Um, so Roaring Twenties, Newt Scamander is um, arriving from London. Uh, to New York, where he is en route to Arizona, uh, to do some adventuring, as it were, when he inadvertently, um, lets loose some of the fantastic beasts, as they were, in his magical suitcase. And, uh, he, and, and a Niffler, actually if you know them from the books, because they weren't in the movies. Uh, Nifflers are dead uh, good at finding treasure. And so, where does this Niffler escape to? A bank. Yes. And, of course, um, shenanigans ensue. He ends up uh, inadvertently involving a muggle, or non-madge, as it were, um, because that's what they refer to them here, stateside, in this time period. 
and runs afoul of the law here in the States. And of course, now you get to see how aurors work and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, we're trying to figure out just exactly what the heck is really going on as Newt finds himself more and more involved in a plot to possibly take over the world of wizards as they could potentially war with the muggle folk now the here's here's the thing with this with with this movie the, um as far as i'm concerned jk rowling did a fantastic job on the script now i don't know how much she really did on her own with this but you know, it's her universe, so I would expect that, you know, she'd do a th- good job. And I, and I really am impressed with this script. I kind of wish she had done the scripts to the books, of, or to the movies of the books, because I feel like they would have been a lot truer to the books than they, than they, than they were. Um, but I think the, the right amount of, um, inclusion of things that we know and love from the books and universe um, are incorporated so well here and yet this has nothing to do with the Harry Potter universe um, you know small spoiler alert there's literally one mention of Dumbledore and that's it uh, so um, you know there, there's nothing there to, to anchor anything to the world of Harry Potter. So this actually just uses the things uh, from that universe. And she does a fantastic job. But the problem is in the tone. The overall story doesn't know what it wants to be when it grows up. So you are consequently left with juxtaposing ideas of whimsy and fantasticality because I just made that word up and then just downright adult scary intense thriller and they literally will happen like one scene follows the other follows the other and so the tone really just kind of like, whoa, you feel like you're on a yo-yo. It's not a roller coaster ride. You literally feel like you're, like you're a yo-yo being yanked back and forth. And it's for a good, almost the first third of the movie. And that's a, that's a long way to go in an, in a movie that's well over two hours. I mean, we're looking at a runtime of 133 minutes. So that, that's damn near 40 minutes of the movie that you're sitting there kind of like, where is it at? What is it trying to do? And then finally it decides, it decides, no, 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 this is a dark story and we're going to tell a dark story. Cool. Man, once they decide this is what we're doing and this is how we're going to let it play out. Fucking awesome. Um, and again, I mean, but the characters are really well done. Eddie Redmayne is fantastic. Um, and I really loved, oh gosh, who is the girl that plays Queenie? Allison Sudol. Um, she is just absolutely fantastic. I, um, I, I mean, I kind of recognized her or whatever, but didn't know where to recognize her from. Still never bothered to look it up, but man, she's just like, so so much fun um dan fogler is um uh is is he's the nomad character 
and also fantastic. Catherine Waterston, though, um, I don't know. Her characterization is kind of wonky. And so it, she's kind of part of that. Is it whimsical? Is it thriller, um, aspect of the film? Because she, 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 I guess she's meant to kind of embody the tone, uh, you know, as it were, but it just, I don't know. I like her by the end of the movie, much like I like the thing. The only person who's consistent throughout the whole thing is Eddie Redmayne, who is fantastic. Um, and as much as I enjoyed Allison, um, and Dan, who play Queenie and Jacob respectively, um, it, they, they took a little bit of getting used to as well, but, Still a lot of fun. Uh, your bad guy is, uh, oh, good Lord. Can't think of his name. Why, Colin Farrell. Good Lord. Sorry about that. Um, bad guy is Colin Farrell. And, well, yet, I mean, is it, is it really, like, do you know off the bat that he's the bad guy? Because it takes a... I mean, you're not really sure until some time. I I did. I could tell you he was the bad guy from the trailer. Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of thought, too. <laughs> um, so, but anyways, Colin Farrell's the bad guy. But he is... He is honestly, for me, I think he is the strongest and most consistent character throughout the whole film. Um, because... He is, he's almost, uh, where Eddie Redmayne, where Newt is the yin, he's the yang. And, um, it's just that the way that Farrell plays Graves, it's just so dark. And yet at the same time, pure. It's, it's pure. It's, it's a dark pure. But it's pure nonetheless. So I'm kind of bouncing all over the place. Let me just say that the movie takes a while to find its footing, but it is well done. It is worth watching. I did enjoy it. I can't wait for the next one. 3.75 out of 5, mainly because of that yo-yo effect of the first 40 minutes. Bring us home there, Tim. Quickly, I'm because I'm pretty sure most of you have already seen this movie. I enjoyed it for what it was. I'm a big... Uh, I don't want, not big, but like, I'm a pretty decent sized Harry Potter movie fan. And what really draws me to those movies is the warmth. There's something about the Hogwarts, you know, the dining hall with all the candles and the, it's the, the, the dimly lit that I just love so much. And I just, it feels all snugly watching those movies. And then when the movie turn, then when the series gets a little bit darker, the feeling of the movie gets darker and colder and harsher and this movie it just constantly feels harsh and dark and i understand it's supposed to be new york city in the 1920s but i i just think that too much bleakness can just bog down a movie and this movie does have a lot of sweetness it has heart it has soul like the dan fogler character once i kind of got used to it being dan fogler in a in a harry potter universe movie i warmed up to him pretty damn quick and the, the movie is just sweet and you really can't beat sweetness really 
But the movie is overall bleak. It is dirty feeling. It is grungier than what a lot of us are used to. And it could be maybe the presentation of the movie. I saw it in IMAX 3D, so I would think it would be top quality viewing, I guess. But you never know. Um, I do like where the story was going. I do like where these characters were going. And I think this is definitely a good first step into another series of films. It's just, I thought this worked better as an introduction than a solid movie. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was a solid movie. And I do understand there was more source material to work with. And a lot of people read the book, so they were familiar as to who these characters were and what was going to happen. But I never read the books. And I felt like I knew these characters right off the bat. And that's what I really wanted with this film. Uh, only a few, a couple of the characters really did that for me. Eddie Redmayne's character and the one who could read minds. I thought she was very good. But other than that, I just thought it was a, it was a good movie. Maybe it'll get better with repeated viewings. I'm not sure. But I think really the one thing that bugged me the most was that some of the dialogue was a little too characteristic, especially the New York accents were very characteristic to where they felt more like caricatures than they did actual people. And I think that's one of the highlights of watching British films and of the dialogue in the Harry Potter movies was that some of the goofy, silly dialogue just sounded better when a Brit was saying it or an Irish lad or lass was saying it or a Scotsman was saying it. And, you know, but when an American says it, it just doesn't work all too well. It just sounds a little goofy. But it's it's still a good movie, and I really can't decide if I should give it more or give it less. But as of right now, I'm giving it a 3.75 out of 5 as well. I was thoroughly looking forward to seeing this movie, and I was a little disappointed. But who knows? It might be better the second time around. But 3.75 out of 5 for me. Right on, right on. All right, well, next week's movies are going to be Allied, which is in theaters, and Into the Inferno, a documentary on Netflix. So, I think we're done. It's about time to get ready for that turkey. (laughs) And family. And the spiel. Is it not, sir? Oh, yes. Family. We forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. And uh, you can find them at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can even follow me, this is Matt on Twitter, by following at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes, favorite us on Stitcher Radio, and of course, get a hold of us on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Steve Martin, I get to say this. A day without sunshine is like, you know, night. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Gobble, gobble, bitches. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. 
And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>